Well, saints, it's good to be with you this evening to study God's Word. Uh, Titus has been, for me, a, a quite rewarding book. We've been describing the qualifications, the quality, really, of an elder. And uh, we're now getting into a part where it talks about why the role of an elder is important. And part of the reason why it's important is because there is opposition. One of the truths many of us fail to think about regularly is the reality that we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. In the, in the midst of spiritual warfare, there's a very important skill that we should be growing in. And that's the, the skill in, in, in detecting and finding out somebody who is phonier or false. In uh, the Treasury Department, they have a whole... Uh, I don't know what you call it, but there's a large group of people, and their sole purpose is dealing with forgery and, and, and things that people pass off as the real thing, but in reality is not genuine. And, and they say when they are training these treasury officials in how to detect that which is false, they spend a long time never looking at any fake bills. For the beginning of their time, all they're studying is the real thing. And by looking at real bills continuously and learning what exactly they look like down to the finest detail, all the security protections that are put in them, the way the paper does and doesn't work, the way they wear out, the way they grow old, they begin to have a a trained eye for the real thing before they look at anything that is false. Here, Paul gets into a portion of his letter where he wants the elders in particularly to recognize and to rebuke false teachers. He wants the elders to recognize and rebuke false teachers and saints. For those of us who love the truth, it is very important that we develop the skills to recognize what is false teaching. We've, we've talked about doctrine a little bit last week. We said uh, that doctrine is simply the content of teaching. But a doctrine guards both truth and life. It shows us who God is, who we are, and how we ought to live. And because of that, in the, in the Christian belief system, doctrine of, is of utmost importance. And therefore, recognizing false teachers is of the utmost importance. With this in mind, let's look what the scriptures have to say on this topic. Titus chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 10. Uh, This section is very important. We're probably going to take two weeks to cover it uh, because there's a lot in here, but it it does flow as just one section. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, reading through the end of the chapter. For there are many who are insubordinate, 
empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to the, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their words. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word given to us. Lord, we pray that You might be here with us. We pray, Lord, that the same Holy Spirit that inspired these words would be ministering to us here tonight to help us to rightly divide the word of truth that we might see you more clearly, that our faith in you might grow more fervent, that our love for you might grow in zeal, and Lord, that our lives might grow in obedience. We ask these things in the beautiful and precious name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we've said this passage is about false teachers, and one of the things that we have is a methodology for recognizing false teachers. And in this passage, we have three characteristics that tend to show themselves with false teachers. And those three characteristics, I'll I'll go over them, and then we'll look at each one more in depth, is first of all, false teachers are disordered. Second of all, false teachers are destructive doctrinally. And thirdly, false teachers are dominated by earthly desires. False teachers are disordered, destructive doctrinally, and also dominated by earthly desires. Verse 10 begins with a four. Anytime a passage begins with a four, it's always good to figure out what the four is there for. Uh, So we back up a little bit, looking at verse 9, describing the elders. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So so this section on false teaching is really flowing out of the exhortation to the elders that they must be able to instruct in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. This next paragraph is showing that in Crete, this isn't a hypothetical job. That the false teachers, that those who are opposing sound doctrine are already there and are already influencing the church in quite destructive ways. So they must be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. Why? Because there's many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. 
this begins to give us a picture of what false teachers look like. They're disordered. They're, they're re- rebellious. We see this uh, relationally, proclamationally, and with relation to their integrity. They are insubordinate. Some passages may, may use the word rebellious. And, and usually when you think of it insubordinate, you think of the military. Insubordinate means disordered. They're, they're insubordinate, they're rebellious. That means they are not properly ordered under the authority of heaven. They're, they're not in a right relationship with God. They have not brought their lives under his authority. And by the way, all sin is insubordination. It is saying God really doesn't have a right to tell me what to do and how to live my life. God's not really good. I know what's best for me and I know how best to pursue it. These people are insubordinate. Uh, there was one time I was talking with someone and he was uh, describing a conversation he had had with his son. Uh, his son was going off to the military, and uh, he was having a conversation about what the son was looking forward to and thinking about. And the, the son, I think this was in the era uh, where the Army's motto was, Be All You Can Be. And, you know, they had these real inspiring commercials. And uh, the, the father, who, who was also had a military background, was talking to the son. He says, well, what are you looking forward to? He says, well, you know, I'm, I'm just looking forward to going and, and showing them what I can contribute and the ideas and uh, the things that I have for, for the military a little bit. You know, the, the, y'all are smirking a little. I, I think the dad did too and said, all, all right, have fun. Go be all you can be. Show them what you got. And uh, he, he said, you know, when his son returned from, from training and a little bit of time in the military, he, he said, well, so, so how's it going? And he said, you know, all those things that I, I thought the military wanted from me, that they'd be interested in what I had to contribute, what I had to say, they weren't interested in that at all. What they were really interested in is whether or not I could obey orders, whether, whether or not I could do what was commanded. And part of the point of, of basic training in, in the different branches of the military is to get you in, into the point where you are correctly subordinate to those who are over you. One of the things we see about false teachers is, is that they're not in proper relationship to authority. They're not in proper relationship, especially to the highest authority, to God, to his teaching. His word. So they're disordered relationally to God in their insubordination. Secondly, it says they're characterized as in empty talkers. Uh, this is disordered proclamationally. In the things that they are declaring, they're not talking about weighty things. They're not declaring the truth of God. If you remember back to the qualifications of the elders, one of the Things is says is he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Uh, the, these empty talkers are, are ones who who say uh, you must hold firm to the word as I teach it, not as I've received it. 
Uh, it's always dangerous for me to, to, to warn against empty talkers as uh, somebody who talks for a living. Uh, but w- one of the things you, you see is characteristic of, of this empty talking. They're, they're proclaiming their own opinions. They're, they're, they're puffed up and conceited. They're proud of what they have to say to you. As saints in, in Christianity, there's not a lot of room for that. Because anything that's true, anything that's significant, anything that's of value to us has been revealed to us by God. All we do is present it to the saints. There's not a lot of room for pride in that. We're presenting what we've received. We're passing on what has been given to us. These empty talkers have the ability to sound eloquent, to sound charming, to gather uh, people around them just based on their skill and ability. I remember uh, somebody telling me in seminary, there's a, a course you go through, and in the course, uh, you have to get up in front of people, deliver a sermon, and then they critique you on it. It's, uh, it is a painful and a grueling experience. And, and there was a friend of mine who went, and he said, you know, with with everyone, they get up, they they say kind of what they did good and what they did bad, and uh, you, you know, give that critique and feedback. And he said there was one guy in his class. He got up and just in terms of presentation and skill was magnificent. And you know, the kind of the audience was just in awe of him. These fellow seminary students, they were either in awe or envy as they as they listened to him. He just gave this fabulous thing, and he's kind of curious. What's the prof going to say? How's he going to improve this beautiful rhetoric, this beautiful presentation, this wonderful uh, abilities? And the prof got, just got up and said, all right, next is so-and-so. And they had that person come up. And, and the guy thought, well, I guess he didn't think he had anything to improve, so he just moved on to the next one. And then at the end of the class, the, the professor got up and he said, all right, so-and-so did a great job presenting. Yes, audience. Now, what did he talk about? And he said, to his surprise, despite the eloquence and the beauty of the message, nobody could remember what his points were. They, they were so impressed with the presentation, they, did, they failed to grasp the substance. Now, he might have had substance, but they just missed it. These f- false teachers, these empty talkers, may have silver tongues. They may have great alliterative points that all begin with the same letter. You know, they they might have the most beautiful presentation of the message, but it lacks content. It lacks depth. They talk a lot, but they don't say anything. This is a characteristic of them. They are disordered proclamationally. They're not proclaiming the truth of the gospel. They are not proclaiming the sound doctrine as revealed through Scripture. Lastly, we see they're, they're disordered with respect to integrity. It says they're deceivers. They're leading people astray. They are presenting something that is false to others. This is not somebody who has a right relationship with integrity. Somebody who's willing to deceive, to mislead, to teach that which is false to others. 
So these are the ways in which you begin to see and recognize what a false teacher is, is that they're disordered in respect to, they're, they're disordered relationally, proclamationally, and in their integrity. The next characteristic, the next way we recognize false teaching is that it is destructive doctrinally. It says they must be silenced, verse 11, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Their doctrine is destructive. Here it says that it is upsetting whole families. It's not just misleading one or two here or there, but whole whole family units are being upset. Some people, in, interpreters, I don't believe this interpretation is right, but some interpretations view this whole families as whole church families. The, the church groups that would meet in the homes, they believe that uh, these groups might have been leading astray whole little house church communities that existed. I, I think it refers to actual uh, families, but it, it's interesting to think of. Uh, this teaching is spreading. It might enter in through one family member and spread to the rest, and it corrupts their doctrine. And as we said, doctrine guards both truth and life. So it, it's upsetting the doctrine and the life, the right living of whole families. This is why. The scripture says they must be silenced. The message needs to stop spreading since it is having a destructive effect. We also get a little insight into the motivation of these people. They aren't really interested in truth. We've seen that in that they're deceivers. But we see why they're doing this teaching. They're teaching for shameful gain. Again, the, uh, I, I love this, the, the way the uh, King James renders this is filthy lucre. For, they're doing this for filthy lucre. By the way, this was a, another term that was used earlier on when it was talking about the elders, the elders don't need to be greedy for gain. One of the things we, we see is, is that the elder isn't interested in taking care of the church in order that they might get rich so that it might benefit them. They're concerned about the sheep. They're concerned about the people. These false teachers don't really, really care about the church. They care about the bottom line. They care about the prophet. They care about what they can get from people, not what God has given to people. And they use their teaching, they use their ability to articulate the truth as a way of extracting financial gain from others. This is destructive. They're destroying families. Why? So that they can gain financially. There are people who are more concerned with, with their financial prosperity than others' spiritual prosperity. And when you compare this to, to somebody like Paul, the, the difference becomes striking, doesn't it? 
Paul goes in, into towns. There are times when he's got to work as a tent maker to make his money. There's times when he has to ask other churches in order to support him. Uh, but he always proclaims the message for free. He, he, he doesn't charge people for it. And by the way, there, there were certain groups in the first century that made their, their living through this, through, through charging for teaching. And in, in, in religious circles, it kind of comes up in different ways. There's a group called the Gnostics, which were a group of uh, false teachers, in, or a group of false teaching that was promoted in the early world, early first century in this ancient world. And they would go out, and there are different varieties of it, all sorts of different varieties and mixes of it. I, I mean, there's... There's all sorts of ways, uh, all different types of Gnosticism. It's not one thing. It refers to a group of teachings. And in general, what they would say is that there is some sort of secret knowledge that you have to have in order to be made right with God. Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosko, which means to know. So there's this secret knowledge. Not everybody knows about it. But once you know about it, then you can begin to go through the rituals or the processes of getting right with God. But if you want to get that knowledge, you've got to pay for it. They have the secret knowledge. They're keeping it hidden until you go through the right steps, until you pay the right amount to get right with God. And then they'll tell you, all right, this, this is how you do it. Now that, now that you've paid the admission fee. Will will let you in. There are other groups, like uh, there are groups of Jewish mystics and others who who went about and uh, taught that uh, there were certain rituals that you had to know, certain purification rites, without which you wouldn't be made right with God. So here are groups of of people, and and they have as their way to make. Money, in a way, selling salvation. I, I gave this message earlier today, and I had a, a good friend, and uh, she said, I, I, I've got to give away, but she said, you know, I was, I was once a good little Catholic girl. I went to Mass every day, and uh, she said there was uh, a, a certain amount you could pay and have the Mass dedicated to whomever you liked. Go back a little further to, to Martin Luther's day. The, the Roman Catholic Church is selling out indulgences. Spiritual get-out-of-free, get-out-of-hell-free cards. Get-away-with-certain-sin cards. Now there's a, a sense in which these people are selling salvation. This goes against the, the spirit of Christianity, does it not? We serve a God who has given to us salvation, not at a cost to us, but at a loss to Him. How much more so should we proclaim boldly and freely that which we have received as the free gift of God? One of the reasons 
why people, we, we know the false teachers aren't of God is because they're not imitating the character of God. They're trying to profit off of selling people salvation. This is doctrinally destructive. The false teaching upsets whole families. He goes on in verse 12 to say that false teachers are dominated by earthly desires. He says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. We see here a a characteristic of being dominated by earthly desires. They're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, he's, He's quoting a Cretan. By the way, there's a difference between a Cretan and a Cretan. Uh, this is C-R-E-T-A-N, which refers to the people of Crete. One of their own people, a, a prophet, and a, a, he's considered by them a prophet. He was also a poet. Uh, is said that the people were always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. One of the things we have to realize is that there are forces working against the gospel. We said this at the beginning. We are in the midst of spiritual warfare. One of the things to to recognize is, is that there are multiple assaults to God's glory, God's word, and God's purposes. There's the flesh within us. There's the devil, and there's the world. Here we have a, a description of a worldly culture that is dominated by certain vices that incline the people against God and his word. He says that in this culture, it is natural for them to lie. They don't put a high price culturally on truth. Says they are evil beasts. That is, they are controlled and dominated by their lower desires. Says they are lazy gluttons. They're living for earthly pleasure. They are working hard as hard as possible to avoid any type of labor, anything that would be a difficulty or encumbrance to them, while at the same time pursuing pleasure and hedonism as much as possible. Their highest good is their own enjoyment. They're living for the pleasure of a life not strained by hard work and dominated by indulgence. Now, we can't relate to that in our culture, can we? We, we, you know, we, we couldn't understand a, a culture that was lazy or gluttonous. We couldn't understand a, a culture that doesn't value truth, could we? Now, one of the things that is important for us to recognize is which desires are godly and which desires are earthly. And recognizing the culture you are in is going to be helpful to that point. Because usually the cultures that we're in and the cultures that we grow up in form us in a part of us that we don't really look at or examine. I think it's an old joke, but... It's not really even a joke, but an old fish is swimming by, and he swims by these two young fish. And the old fish says, hey, boys, how's the water? And swims off. The two sw- younger fish are swimming with each other, and one looks together and says, what on earth is water? 
there are parts of our culture that we've grown up in, that we're ingrained in, that we haven't noticed because we've been swimming in it since birth. One of the things that I hope happens as you come to Scripture is that whenever you feel as though there's a difference between what the Scriptures proclaim and the values our culture holds, is that you'll abandon the vices of our culture. We, we live, by the way, in a culture that has a whole lot of access to us. We have 24-hour news cycles. We have radio. You have internet. You have phones. All of which can be sent to barrage you with information, with cultural assumptions. We, we, we have a nation, and there are even, even parts of it that we view as good and valuable that may not be scriptural. We live in a society that is built on the individualistic pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How scriptural are those? Part, part of the whole purpose of, of Titus, by the way, uh, is that you won't be free, that you will be subordinate. That you will be rightly ordered under God. That you will follow His commands. That that you will not be pursuing your happiness, but His glory. The Scriptures tell us not to pursue life, but to lay it down. We're all living in a culture which is opposed to the purposes of God. I hope as you read Scripture, you begin to recognize the ways in which our culture opposes the work and the word of God. These false teachers take advantage of these cultural vices. And and in fact, they participate in them. They're willing to lie. Why? So that they can be lazy and gluttonous. Remember you said they were teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught? So Guess what? They're willing to lie. Why? So that they don't have to work that hard. They just have to sell their teaching. And then they get to be gluttonous. As people pay them, they get to enjoy the fruits of this life and this world by spending the money of people they're hoodwinking. So as we look at this, we begin to recognize that false teachers are are disordered and rebellious. They are destructive doctrinally, and they're dominated by earthly desires. By the way, this list, as we describe false teachers, as we've been going through, hopefully some lights are going on in your mind and and say, you know, this sounds almost like the exact opposite of the characteristics that we have been talking about in terms of what the elders should look like. You notice that? Elders are to be ordered. How? Relationally, proclamationally, and integrity. They're to have a right relationship with God and others. They're to have a right relationship with His Word, to be subordinated under it. They're to be rightly ordered proclamationally. That is, they can instruct others in sound doctrine and refute false doctrine. They're to have a right relationship with integrity. So much of the descriptions of the elders is, hey, no accusation needs to be brought against these people. They aren't to be liars. They aren't to be deceptive. They aren't to be greedy for sordid gain. They're to be the opposite of that. Instead of being disordered and rebellious relationally, proclamation and integrity, they're ordered morally in those areas. Instead of being destructive doctrinally, they're edifying doctrinally. 
They are able to build up the church through their example and through their teaching. Instead of being dominated by earthly desires, they're ruled by spiritual desires. They're not open to the charge of debauchery. They're above reproach. They serve as God's stewards. They're not arrogant. They're not quick-tempered, not drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain, but they're hospitable. They're a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. By the way, hospitable is the opposite of greedy for gain. Hospitable means you take people into your own house. You care for other people at your own expense. That's the opposite of the false teachers. They're taking advantage of other people for their own benefit. The elders are to be characterized as people who are taking care of others even at a loss to them. I hope these things begin you to give you a criteria for recognizing false teachers. It should also be motivating in your own lives to say, these are things I don't want to be or become. I don't want the culture to influence me in such a way that I begin to value money more than God. That I begin to look for ways I can take advantage of other people for my own financial gain. That I don't live in relationship to what I can enjoy in this world in terms of the things God has prohibited. But rather think, how can I bring him honor and glory? How can I make him my joy? In recognizing them, there is also a purpose to rebuke them. It says, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. In this zeal for true doctrine, in this zeal for the truth, in this rebuking of the false teachers, one of the things we see is its purpose is to safeguard faith. The reason why the false message and the false messengers are silenced is because they threaten the faith of the believers by, correcting, by corrupting the content of the doctrine and therefore the lives of those who believe in the doctrine. What you believe always has an impact on the way you live. My father growing up had a father who was very wealthy and successful in business. He, he ran a steel company that did very well started his own steel company and was quite successful. At, at the height of his business career, he had a house in Florida, a small plane and a pilot to fly him down there. And he had a Cadillac that was converted into a Cadillac truck so that it, he was the only person driving around with a Cadillac that had a truck bed in the back. And my dad and talked to me told me, you know, this really influenced his view of himself. He believed, hey, Stevens make good business decisions. They're wise and they're smart. They're successful and prosperous. And that formed part of his identity. They make good decisions. Well, my grandfather sold that business, started another steel business, but without the same success. Due to certain different circumstances, he, he lost what he had had, 
and, and through lawsuits and some other things that were brought against him, failed in that business venture. Had to sell a lot of those possessions. My dad said at, at that point, his underlying beliefs were sh- shaken. What if Stevens make bad business decisions? What if Stevens don't always make the wisest choices? What if they aren't always destined for success? Your beliefs change the way you act and function in this world. The faith needs to be protected because by it people live and breathe and move in this world. The doctrine of the church needs to be safeguarded against false teachers because the doctrine is what tells us the most important things in life. Who is God? Who am I? How are we to live? What has God done? What is God doing? What will God do? It tells us of His grace and His mercy, of His power and His compassion, of His order and His justice, of His glory and His majesty. False teachers are to be rebuked, but the purpose isn't to destroy the false teachers, but to preserve the faith. In fact, in in saying this, He says, that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply, harshly, but not so that they might be crushed, so they might be saved, so that they might return to the soundness of faith, to the true doctrine. Again, we have in the the commands of God a call to imitate the character of God. God has sharply rebuked us for our sins, has He not? Why? Not that He might destroy us, but that we might be saved from those sins. We, we as the church, are, are entirely composed of a people who are at one time opposed to the purposes, to the works, to the glory of God. But He has redeemed us. He has saved us. He has changed us from children of wrath to sons and daughters of the kingdom. From those who are destined to eternity in hell now to being those who are destined to eternity in His presence. In terms of the church, all of us are enemies that have now been made friends. Much more than friends, heirs to eternal life. That's the God we're serving. As we encounter those who are opposed to God, His Word, His work, His purposes, we need to remember that. Yes, we need to rebuke the false teaching, the untruth, zealously, but always in the hope that they might be restored to true faith. This is our hope. This is our goal. This is a way in which we imitate the character of a loving God who has saved us, a once rebellious people, now redeemed in His presence and in His might. Our benediction comes from Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. O God, our Father, do this and more for your glory. Amen.